Section 19 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Abraham Lincoln, Part 5. The only great obstacle was the difficulty of enlisting men in what was now more than ever to be a dangerous work. When Grant began his march to Richmond, probably half a million of soldiers had perished on each side, and a national debt had been contracted of over two thousand millions of dollars. In spite of patriotic calls, in spite of bounties, it became necessary to draft men into the service, a compulsory act of power to be justified only by the exigencies of the country. In no other way could the requisite number of troops be secured. Multitudes of the survivors have been subsequently rewarded, at least partially, by pensions. The pension list, at the close of Harrison's administration in 1892, amounted to a sum greater than Germany annually expends on its gigantic army. So far as the pensioners are generally disabled veterans, the people make no complaint, appreciating the sacrifices which the soldiers were compelled to make in the dreadful contest. But so vast a fund for distribution attracted the inevitable horde of small lawyers and pension agents, who swelled the list with multitudes of sham veterans and able-bodied cripples, until many eminent ex-soldiers cried out for a purgation of that which should be a list of honor. Nor is it disloyal or unpatriotic to shed a tear for the brave but misguided men whom the southern leaders led to destruction without any such recompense for their wounds and hardships, for the loss of their property, loss of military prestige, loss of political power, loss of everything but honor. At first we called them rebels, and no penalties were deemed too severe for them to suffer, but later we called them confederates, waging war for a cause which they honestly deemed sacred, and for which they cheerfully offered up their lives. A monstrous delusion indeed, but one for which we ceased to curse them, and soon learned to forgive, after their cause was lost. Resentment gave place to pity, and they became like erring brothers, whom it was our duty to forgive, and in many respects our impulse to admire, not for their cause, but for their devotion to it. All this was foreseen and foretold by Edward Everett during the war, yet there were but few who agreed with him. I can devote but little space to the military movements of General Grant in Virginia until Richmond surrendered and the rebellion collapsed. There was among the Southerners no contempt of this leader, fresh from the laurels of Fort Donelson, Vicksburg, and Chattanooga, and the Confederates put forth almost superhuman efforts to defend their capital against the scientific strategy of the most successful general of the war supported as he was by almost unlimited forces and the unreserved confidence of his government. The new general-in-chief established his headquarters at Culpeper Courthouse near the end of March 1864. His plan of operations was simple, to advance against Lee before proceeding to Richmond and defeat his army if possible. Richmond, if taken, would be comparatively valueless unless Lee were previously defeated. Grant's forces were about 150,000 men and Lee's little more than half that number, but the latter were entrenched in strong positions on the interior line. It was Grant's plan to fight whenever an opportunity was presented, since he could afford to lose two men to one of the enemy and was thus sure to beat in the long run, as a chess player having a superiority of pieces freely exchanges as he gets opportunity. There was nothing particularly brilliant in this policy adopted by Grant, except the great fact that he chose the course most likely to succeed, whatever might be his losses. Lee at first was also ready to fight, but after the dreadful slaughter on both sides in the battles of the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, and Cold Harbor, he apparently changed his plan. One third of his forces had melted away, he saw that he could not afford to take risks, and retreated behind his defenses. 
Grant, too, had changed his operations, at first directing against Richmond on the northwest, and since he found every hill and wood and morass strongly fortified, he concluded to march on Lee's flank to the James River and attack Richmond from the south, after reducing Petersburg and destroying the southern railroads by which the Confederates received most of their supplies. The Federal commander had all the men he wanted. A large force was under Butler near Petersburg, and Sheridan had driven out the enemy from the valley of the Shenandoah with his magnificent cavalry. Lee was now cooped up between Fredericksburg and Richmond. He was too great a general to lead his army into either of these strongholds, where they might be taken as Pemberton's army was at Vicksburg. He wisely kept the field, although he would not fight except behind his entrenchments, when he was absolutely forced by the aggressive foe. Henceforth, from June 1864 to the close of the war, the operations of Grant resembled a siege rather than a series of battles. He had lost over 50,000 men thus far in his march, and he, too, now became economical of his soldiers' blood. He complained not, but doggedly carried out his plans without consulting the government at Washington or his own generals. His work was hard and discouraging. He had to fight his way, step by step, against strong entrenchments, the only thing to do, but he had the will and patience to do it. He had ordered an attack on Petersburg, which must be reduced before he could advance to Richmond, but the attack had failed, and now he sat down to a regular siege of that strong and important position. The siege lasted ten months, when Lee was driven within his inner line of defenses, and seeing that all was lost, on April 2, 1865, evacuated his position and began his retreat to the west, hoping to reach Lynchburg, and after that effect a junction with Johnston coming up from the south. But his retreat was cut off near Appomattox, and being entirely surrounded, he had nothing to do but surrender to Grant with his entire army, April 9th. With his surrender, Richmond, of course, fell, and the war was virtually closed. Out of the 2,200,000 men who had enlisted on the Union side, 110,000 were killed or mortally wounded, and 250,000 died from other causes. The expense of the war was $3,250,000,000. The losses of the Confederates were about three-quarters as much. Of the millions who had enlisted on both sides, nearly a million of men perished, and over 5,000 millions of dollars were expended probably a quarter of the whole capital of the country at that time. So great were the sacrifices made to preserve the Union at the cost of more blood and treasure than have been spent in any other war in modern times. I am compelled to omit notices of military movements in other parts of the Union, especially in the West, where some of the most gallant actions of the war took place. The brilliant strategy of Rosecrans, the signal achievements of Thomas, Sherman's march to the sea, Sheridan's raids, the naval exploits of Farragut, Porter, and Foote, and other acts of heroism as not bearing directly on the life of Lincoln. Of course, he felt the intensest interest in all the military operations and bore an unceasing burden of study and of anxiety, which of itself was a great strain on all his powers. If anything had gone wrong which he could remedy, his voice and his hand would have been heard and seen. But toward the last, other things demanded his personal attention, and these were of great importance. There never had been a time since his inauguration when he was free from embarrassments and when his burdens had not been oppressive. Among other things, the misunderstanding between him and Secretary Chase was anything but pleasant. Chase had proved himself the ablest finance minister that this country had produced after Alexander Hamilton. He was a man of remarkable dignity, integrity, and patriotism. He was not vain, but he was conscious both of his services and his abilities. And he was always inclined to underrate Lincoln, whom he misunderstood. He also had presidential aspirations. After three years' successful service, he did not like to have his suggestions disregarded and was impatient under any interference with his appointments. 
To say the least, his relations with the president were strained. Annoyed and vexed with some appointments of importance, he sent in his resignation, accompanied with a petulant letter. Lincoln, on its receipt, drove to the secretary's house, handed back to him his letter, and persuaded him to reconsider his resignation. But it is difficult to mend a broken jar. The same trouble soon again occurred in reference to the appointment in New York of an assistant treasurer by Mr. Chase, which the president, having no confidence in the appointee, could not accept, on which the secretary again resigned, and Lincoln at once accepted his resignation with these words. Of all I have said in commendation of your ability and fidelity, I have nothing to unsay. And yet you and I have reached a point of mutual embarrassment in our official relations, which it seems cannot be overcome or longer sustained consistently with the public service. Mr. Chase, however, did not long remain unemployed. On the death of Chief Justice Cheney in October 1864, Mr. Lincoln appointed him to the head of the Supreme Court, showing how little he cherished resentment and how desirous he was to select the best man for all responsible positions, whether he personally liked them or not. Even when an able man had failed in one place, Lincoln generally found use for his services in another. Witness the gallant exploits of Burnside, Hooker, and Meade after they had retired from the head of the Army of the Potomac. As a successor to Mr. Chase in the Treasury, the President, to the amazement of the country, selected Governor Todd of Ohio, who wisely declined the office. The next choice fell on Senator William Pitt Fessenden, who reluctantly assumed an office which entailed such heavy responsibilities and hard work but who made it in a fine record for efficiency. It was no slight thing to be obliged to raise 100 millions of dollars every month for the expense of the war. While General Grant lay apparently idle in his trenches before Petersburg, the presidential election of 1864 took place, and in spite of the unpopular draft of 500,000 men in July and a summer and autumn of severe fighting both east and west, Mr. Lincoln was elected. There had been active and even acrimonious opposition, but who could compete with him? At this time, his extraordinary fitness for the high office in the gift of the nation was generally acknowledged, and the early prejudices against him had mostly passed away. He neither sought nor declined the re-election. His second inaugural address has become historical for its lofty sentiments and political wisdom. It was universally admired, and his memorable words sunk into every true American heart. Said he, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may soon pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid with another drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And as showing his earnest conscientiousness, these familiar words, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and orphans, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. The eloquence of this is surpassed only by his own short speech at the dedication of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. November 19, 1863, which threw into the shade the rhetoric of the greatest orator of his time, and stands, unstudied as it was, probably the most complete and effective utterance known in this century. That immortal inaugural address, in March 1865, so simple and yet so eloquent, expresses two things in Mr. Lincoln's character to be especially noted. 
first the tenderness and compassion blended with stern energy and iron firmness of will which shrank from bloodshed and violence yet counted any sacrifice of blood and treasure as of little account in comparison with the transcendent blessing of national union and liberty and secondly the change which it would appear gradually took place in his mind in reference to divine supervision in the affairs of men and nations i need not dwell on the first since nothing is more unquestionable than his abhorrence of all unnecessary bloodshed or of anything like vengeance or punishment of enemies whether personal or political his leniency and forgiveness were so great as to be denounced by some of his best friends and by all political fanatics and this leniency and forgiveness were the more remarkable since he was not demonstrative in his affections and friendships from his judicial temper and the ascendancy of his intellectual faculties over passion and interest he was apparently cold in his nature and impassive in view of all passing events to such a degree that his humanity seemed to be based on a philosophy very much akin to that of marcus aurelius his sympathies were keen however and many a distressed woman had cause for gratitude to him for interference with the stern processes of army discipline in time of war much to the indignation of the civil or military martinets in regard to the change in his religious views this fact is more questionable but attested by all who knew him and by most of his biographers as a lawyer in springfield his religious views according to his partner and biographer herndon were extremely liberal verging upon those advanced theories which volney and thomas paine advocated even upon atheism itself as he grew older he became more discreet as to the expression of his religious opinions judge davis who knew him well affirms that he had no faith in the christian sense but only in laws principles cause and effect that is he had no belief in a personal god no religion seemed to find favor with him except that of a practical and rationalistic order he never joined a church and was skeptical of the divine origin of the bible still more of what is called providential agency in this world but when the tremendous responsibilities of his office began to press upon his mind and the terrible calamities that he deplored but could not avert stirred up his soul in anguish and sadness then the recognition of the need of assistance higher than that of man for the guidance of this great nation in its unparalleled trials became apparent in all his utterances when he said as god gives us to see the right he meant if he meant anything that wisdom to act in trying circumstances is a gift distinct from what is ordinarily learned from experience or study this gift we believe he earnestly sought it must have been a profound satisfaction to mr lincoln that he lived to see the total collapse of the rebellion the fall of richmond the surrender of lee and the flight of jefferson davis the complete triumph of the cause which it was entrusted to him to guard how happy he must have been to see that the choice he made of a general-in-chief in the person of ulysses grant had brought the war to a successful close whatever the sacrifices which this great general found it necessary to make to win ultimate success what a wonder it is that mr lincoln surrounded with so many dangers and so many enemies should have lived to see the completion of the work for which he was raised up no life of ease or luxury or exultation did he lead after he was inaugurated having not even time to visit the places where his earlier life was passed for him there were no triumphal visits to new york and boston no great ovations anywhere his great office brought him only hard and unceasing toil which taxed all his energies it was while seeking a momentary relaxation from his cares and duties but a few weeks after his second inauguration that he met his fate at the hands of the assassin from peril of whose murderous designs no great actor on the scene of mortal strife and labor can be said to be free all that a grateful and sorrowing nation could do was done in honor of his services and character 
His remains were carried across the land to their last resting place in Illinois, through our largest cities, with a funeral pageantry unexampled in the history of nations, and ever since orders have exhausted language in their economiums of his greatness and joy. Something that Lincoln died, fortunately, for his fame, that had he lived he might have made mistakes, especially in the work of Reconstruction, which would have seriously affected his claim as a great national benefactor. On the other hand, had he lived, he might have put the work of Reconstruction on a basis which would have added to his great services to the country. The South had no better friend than he, and he was incapable of animosity or revenge. Certain it is that this work of Reconstruction requires even yet the greatest patriotism and a marvelous political wisdom. The terrible fact that five millions of free Negroes are yet doomed to ignorance, while even the more intelligent and industrious have failed to realize the ideals of citizenship, makes the Negro question still one of paramount importance in the South. The great question, whether they shall enjoy the right of suffrage, seems to be disposed of for the present, but the greater problem of their education must be solved. The subject is receiving the most serious consideration, and encouraging progress is already making in the direction of their general and industrial training. But they are fast increasing. Their labor is a necessity, and they must be educated to citizenship both in mind and in morals, where the fairest portion of our country will find their presence a continuous menace to peace and prosperity. These questions it was not given to Mr. Lincoln to consider. He died prematurely as a martyr. Nothing consecrates a human memory like martyrdom. Nothing so effectually ends all jealousies, animosities, and prejudices as the assassin's dagger. If Caesar had not been assassinated, it is doubtful if even he, the greatest man of all antiquity, could have bequeathed universal empire to his heirs. Lincoln's death unnerved the strongest mind and touched the heart of the nation with undisassembled sadness and pity. From that time, no one has dared to write anything derogatory to his greatness. That he was a very great man, no one now questions. It is impossible, however, for any one yet to set him in the historical place, which, as an immortal benefactor, he is designed to occupy. All speculation as to his comparative rank is worse than useless. Time affects wonderful changes in human opinions. There are some people in these days who affect to regard Washington as commonplace, as the lawyers of Edinburgh at one time regarded Sir Walter Scott, because he made no effort to be brilliant in after-dinner speeches. There are others who, in the warmth of their innocent enthusiasm, think that Lincoln's fame will go on increasing, until, in the whole eastern world, among the mountains of Tibet, on the shores of China and Japan, among the jungles of India, in the wilds of darkest Africa, in the furthermost islands of the sea, his praises will be sung as second to no political benefactor that the world has seen. As all exaggerations provoke antagonism, it is wisest not to compare him with any national idols, but leave him to the undisputed verdict of the best judges. That lie was one of the few immortals who will live in a nation's heart and the world's esteem from age to age. Is this not fame enough for a modest man, who felt his inferiority in many respects to those to whom he himself entrusted power? Lincoln's character is difficult to read from its many-sided aspects. He rarely revealed to the same person more than a single side. His individuality was marvelous. Let us take him, in the words of his latest good biographer, as simply Abraham Lincoln, singular and solitary as we all see that he was. Let us be thankful if we can make a niche big enough for him among the world's heroes without worrying ourselves about the proportion it may bear to other niches. And there, let him remain forever, lonely, as in his strong lifetime, impressive, mysterious, unmeasured, and unsolved. 
one thing may be confidently affirmed of this man that he stands as a notable exemplar in the highest grade of the american of this century the natural development of the self-reliant english stock upon our continent lowell in his commemoration ode has set forth lincoln's greatness and this fine representative quality of his in words that may well conclude our study of the man and of the full first epoch of american life here was a type of the true elder race and one of plutarch's men talked with us face to face i praise him not it were too late and some innative weakness there must be in him who condescends to victory such as the president gives and cannot wait safe in himself as in a fate so always firmly he he knew to bide his time and can his fame abide still patient in his simple faith sublime till the wise years decide great captains with their guns and drums disturb our judgment for the hour but at last silence comes these all are gone and standing like a tower our children shall behold his fame the kindly earnest brave foreseeing man sagacious patient dreading praise not blame new birth of our new soil the first american authorities the most voluminous of the lives of abraham lincoln is that of nicolay and hay which seems to be fair and candid without great exaggerations but it is more a political and military history of the united states than a life of lincoln himself herndon's life is probably the most satisfactory of the period before lincoln's inauguration holland lamar stoddard arnold and morse have all written interesting biographies see also ford's history of illinois greeley's american conflict lincoln and douglas debates lincoln's speeches published by the century company secretary chase's diary swinton's army of the potomac lives of seward mcclellan garrison and grant grant's autobiography mcclure's lincoln and men of war times wilson's history of the rise and fall of the slave power end of section nineteen